I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 8th, 2011. Coming up, we talk with Vicki Goldstein about an event that will bring the ocean to Colorado. Good morning. We live on an ocean planet, and we are creating an ocean and inland ocean movement. So making waves in Colorado is about getting everyone involved. And John Mishler gets down and dirty about nitrogen. We all know that nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus are important for crops, but we want the food without getting the worms. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. You may have heard the Mark Twain quote, whiskey's for drinkin', water's for fightin'. According to a new study on water and energy in the Intermountain West, fighting over water, with lawyers if not guns, may intensify in the future. The Pacific Institute in Oakland, California, published a study last week that looks at just how much water goes into producing electricity within the interior west from solar, wind, and fossil fuel sources. The Intermountain West draws particular interest because its population is soaring, and that means intensifying demand for water and energy on top of the existing water supply limitations. According to the study, under current trends, by 2035, water withdrawals and consumption for electricity generation in the region are projected to increase by 2% and 5% respectively over 2010 levels. The report also argues that water consumption can be dramatically reduced by taking some concrete measures such as expand energy efficiency efforts, install more dry cooling systems for steam power plants, and rely more heavily on renewable energy, such as wind and solar PV. The study is called Water for Energy, Future Water Needs for Electricity in the Intermountain West. You can access it at the website pacinst.org. Carbon dioxide levels and extreme weather events are on the rise, but there is a link between the two, perhaps? An upcoming report by the UN's International Panel on Climate Change explores the potential connection. The draft report, quote, paints a wild future for a world already weary of weather catastrophes costing billions of dollars, according to the Associated Press. There has been no shortage of natural disasters in the past year. Droughts in Texas and floods in Pakistan, forest fires in Siberia and intense rains in Thailand. But can we blame human activities? Such catastrophes are consistent with predictions, which suggest increased volatility and frequency of weather extremes. But client scientists find it difficult to prove causation. The IPCC report claims a two-in-three chance that man-made greenhouse gases have already worsened climate extremes. This is not a good sign, considering that last year's global increase in carbon dioxide was the largest on record, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. Current greenhouse gas levels are higher than climate scientists' worst-case scenarios in the last IPCC report. Both the IPCC and the U.S. Department of Energy suggest that socioeconomic factors are a major factor in the extremity of today's natural disasters. Increasing populations and urban development are putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. They are also putting more people in harm's way. While some accuse the panel's report of being too alarmist, climate scientists say that they are conservative 
with their predictions. The IPCC report is set for publication in a few weeks, pending approval by diplomats. When it comes to discussing possible societal implications of their work, many scientists pull their punches. But if the abstract of a talk Peter Towns is scheduled to give tomorrow is any indication, the senior scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration will tell it just like he sees it. Towns' public talk is titled Climate Change and the End of Exponential Growth. In his abstract, Towns says human-caused global climate change is, in his words, a clear manifestation that we've reached limits of resource consumption by our species and that continuing business as usual has a substantial chance of destroying our civilization. Not such great news, is it? The talk will be held at the Mesa Lab at the National Center for Atmospheric Research starting at 11 a.m. in the main seminar room. listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. When people think of Colorado, they usually don't think about oceans. After all, Colorado doesn't have much of a coastline these days, though it definitely had oceanfront property a few hundred million years ago. However, being in a landlocked state doesn't mean that there isn't anything we can do to impact the health and ecology of the ocean and marine biology. This Sunday at the Boulder Public Library, the Colorado Ocean Coalition will be sponsoring a free symposium titled Making Waves in Colorado. The symposium will have several ocean activists and scientists, including Dr. Sylvia Earle, who is one of National Geographic's Explorers in Residence, and Dan Basta, director of NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary Program, among many others. Panels and presentations will examine marine protected areas, environmental impacts of plastics, oceans and climate change, and the relationship between land use and watersheds. There will be teacher workshops and activities for youths of all ages during the symposium. Well, joining us in the studio today is Vicki Goldstein, founder and president of the Colorado Ocean Coalition. She has a master's degree in environmental studies and marine policy from Yale University and directed the College of the Atlantic's Natural History Museum and executive director of the Save Our Shores organization. She is here to talk about the symposium and the human impact on the ocean and vice versa. Welcome to the show, Vicki. Good morning, thank you. So the symposium on Sunday, tell us what's it all about and how did it get started? Well, it's really about trying to get people engaged in ocean issues and realizing that pretty much every two or three breaths that we take come from the ocean. So we're really integrated and we're very intertwined. Living in Colorado, um, having an ocean passion and realizing that many people are from the coast or at least have a love of the coast started me thinking about how do we how do we really make this tangible and started talking with many people around the country and realized that there is not an inland ocean movement and in order to get everyone in this country engaged not just coastal states and coastal people 
we had to find a mechanism to bring people together to integrate their interest, and we came up with Making Waves in Colorado. So those in Colorado still have a stake in the ocean, even if we've never seen it in our lives. Absolutely. We need it for many, many things, for air, for food, um, for climate, our temperature, for skiing, for summer. So uh, people really forget we are on an ocean planet and we are, we are very integrated in the bigger picture. So it's really just bringing that message back home. So you're getting a, a large number of people from all around, ocean experts to come to Colorado. I don't know how hard it was to convince them to come to Colorado <laughs> in the winter, but you have a, the cartoonist of uh, Sherman's Lagoon. Right, Jim well, Toomey is coming out. He'll be giving a, a panel with David Helvarg. They wrote a book together, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean, and he's also doing a special segment for kids for cartoon drawing. Oh, great. Oh, we have Roz Savage, who has single-handedly rowed the Indian, the Atlantic, and the Pacific Ocean, and she's now in the Guinness Book of World Records. We have Louis Sahoyas, who directed The Cove. And we hmm. have people who are passionate about oceans from a recreational point of view, and then we have the scientists, and then we have the artists. So this idea is not just bringing the experts from a scientific perspective, but it's really trying to bring out you know, the artistic, the emotional, the the passionate in a way that everybody can relate and engage with. And, and I should mention, I guess, that November 13th is Boulder's first Ocean Awareness Day as well, officially. It is. We will be getting the declaration this evening from the mayor. And that's that's pretty exciting to be putting Boulder on the map as an inland ocean town. And uh, Jim Toomey, wow put a little cartoon together for Sherman, and we are now ocean country. Since we are in this landlocked state, one question we would have is, what impact do we have, or what can we do to help uh, and provide for ocean ecosystem? We're kind of in the middle of the country here. Right. Well, there's a variety of things. Um, just being aware of watersheds and, and what you do in your own home and on your lawns and, and how you treat the riparian area for the rivers. That's very important because basically Colorado flows to the ocean. Um, plastics, your choice of whether to take that plastic bag or bring your own or carry your own water bottle. And you'll be hearing more about that at the symposium about our role in plastics and plastic pollution. I could imagine that kind of consumer choices are probably a primary impact that we might make on ocean health whether it's what we eat or what we put in our water that flows to the ocean or something like that. Absolutely. Every time you go to the market, to a restaurant, you are making choices that affect the ocean. For instance, what are good ocean-healthy choices were I to go out to eat? Do we start at the bottom of the food chain? Do we shark fin soup? <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely like you to avoid the large predators for sure. And eating low on the food chain is better. So going for small things. Sardines are my favorite, I'd have to say. <laughs> but just being aware of the sustainability. And we will have uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium will have information at the library with many of their cards. And whether or not you're a complete carnivore or a vegan, there are many choices that an individual can make. So we just want to provide education and encourage people to make the right choices, not necessarily say, stop eating everything out of the sea, even though that would be a, a good thing to do. But we want to be inclusive and, and just get people excited about their own opportunities for improving the oceans. 
and the earth. Another issue that's related to this, I'm sure, with ocean and ecosystem health is overfishing due to demand of what type of fish people want to have at their, on their next meal. Are there certain types we should avoid or just try well, to eat low? Well, yeah, eat low and avoid the big predators, avoid the sharks. And um, when you go to either Whole Foods or get those cards, just avoid the red ones. But I want to go back just to mm. touch on the whole idea of the oceans. And there's this big effort called marine protected areas. Um, Sylvia Earle calls them hope spots. And really it's a way to find particular ecosystems, really important areas, and protect them from any kind of extraction. And this is something that politically we can learn about and get engaged in because it's very, very important to protect those ecosystems. So how do, again, Coloradans support these marine protected areas? First of all, show up at the event, learn more about this, and once we develop a constituency for oceans and our political leaders recognize, wow, we do have people who love oceans, we can start encouraging them to address local, regional, national, and international policies because we have a lot of power in the middle of the country that we haven't tapped into yet. So this is a really exciting new adventure. Well, I hope it goes really well. I hope you have a good turnout, and I appreciate you coming in to talk to us briefly today about the event. Thank you very much. So that was Vicki Goldstein, founder and president of the Colorado Ocean Coalition. You can attend the free symposium called Making Waves in Colorado this Sunday, November 13th, from 1 to 5 p.m. at the Boulder Public Library. More information about the coalition is available at www.facebook.com slash Colorado Ocean. <laughs> You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. We return to the topic of nitrogen. In its gaseous form, nitrogen is harmless and makes up nearly 80% of the atmosphere. In fact, we couldn't live without it. And the planet never would have reached 7 billion people, which it just did, without nitrogen in the form of chemical fertilizer. But excess nitrogen from fertilizer runoff, manure, human sewage, and other sources is wreaking havoc on the environment. And, as John Mishler knows, reactive nitrogen, the form plants can use, and other nutrients are also increasingly being linked to human disease. Mishler, a Ph.D. student at CU Boulder, is researching, down low on the food chain, worms and snails here in Colorado and in Africa. He's in the studio now to talk about how excess nutrients in ponds, lakes, and elsewhere can lead to the spread of parasitic disease from snails to us. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. So we were just talking about the food chain in the oceans. You're working way down low on the food chain. Just describe how you got to researching the worms and the snails. And I should just mention, working with parasites, it's a little uh, confusing that way, that you're working very low on the food chain and that parasites are eaten by a lot of organisms. Sarah Orflosky at the University of Colorado is doing a lot of work on that. But... Parasites are also very, while being very small, are also very high on the food chain as they prey on large animals like us. So I work both low and high on the food chain, depending on your point <laughs> you of view. You cover the whole range. Right. <laughs> so, so what's the story about 
the worms and how they get to snails and, and to us. Right. So I got interested in this work. I grew up on a farm in the middle of Illinois, and so I'm used to seeing nitrogen fertilizer and its effects on ecosystems when it's over-applied. But I've also done a lot of work in Africa where I've seen a lot of effects on parasitic diseases on people. So, Like schistosomiasis? Or schistosomiasis, what? absolutely. It's the second leading parasitic disease after malaria. It so still it's, is. It's a big problem in the world. Whereabouts in Africa? Um, I've been working in Tanzania and Zambia, but um, it's definitely a, almost a total sub-Saharan African-wide problem. So, so close to home, first of all, in this landlocked state. Um, how, wh- what's the link between the excess nutrients, like you were describing the fertilizer runoff and such, and the, the human disease in this case? Right. So to understand that link, we have to go a little bit into the life cycle. So I work with trematodes, schistosomiasis. Trematodes, little uh, worms? Right. Little, they're little flatworms that live inside um, animals. And so these trematodes have what's called a complex life cycle, or an indirect life cycle, and that means that they start out in one organism, in this case, usually an aquatic snail, and after it develops in that aquatic snail, it then pass on to another organism. So in the case of human schistosomiasis, the parasite starts out in a snail, grows up, swims out of the snail, penetrates the skin of a human, and then grows into another life stage, which is a worm inside that human, and starts laying eggs. Nasty. And millions <laughs> and millions, right? Right. Yeah. So the schistosomes can live up to 20 years. They mate for life. Very romantic story as far as worms are concerned. Oh, and, monogamy for life. Right, exactly. They're very loyal. They actually are connected physically, so they have no choice. And we just focus <laughs> on the swans. Right, I know, I know. So once, so once this worm is in, is in the person and, and has mated, yeah, you're right, they will lay millions and millions of eggs over their lifetime, and so these eggs will be passed out in the water and start the life cycle again. But I don't only work on human schistosomiasis because that's more of a tropical problem, not really um, relatable here in Colorado. But we actually do have schistosomes that we have to worry about here in Colorado and actually specifically on the front range. So there's a kind of schistosome that infects birds called an avian schistosome. So it usually wants to go from a snail to a bird. And how does it get from the snail to the bird? It swims there. It just swims through the water and penetrates the bird's leg usually. There are some different species that do some different Just things. Just in that second, the bird is perched. Yeah. So like a great blue heron, for instance, is a wading bird, and it'll oh. spend a lot of time in the water. So, And then from the bird to us, how? So it actually, the problem with circarial dermatitis is that the parasite makes a mistake. So the parasite wants to find a bird, but... Sometimes it gets confused if there's a person walking around some in the water. Some of us have really skinny legs. Right, yeah, that's true. Not me, but some other people do, I'm sure. <laughs> but so as people are in the water walking around, the parasite cannot tell the difference between a bird leg and a person leg. And so these parasites will penetrate into a person's leg just as they would the bird's leg. The problem is that the parasite, once it gets into the person, gets really confused because it's hardwired <laughs> to navigate the physiology of a bird. And so once it's inside a person, it can get confused, cause lung hemorrhaging, even find its way up to the Wait, brain. how does that confusion lead to lung hemorrhaging? Just get stuck in one place or something? So it, so it migrates within the body, but it, it can't really tell. It has no roadmap within a person to where it needs to go to reproduce. So it might just accidentally end up in the lung. Wow. So have there been actual cases in Colorado, specifically in the Front Range, but more broadly, Colorado? And I should mention that the lung hemorrhaging and Partial paralysis is definitely not 
very common. And to my knowledge, no one in Colorado has suffered this. But what they do suffer, which we've had in Cherry Creek Reservoir, I know, and down in Colorado Springs and Prospect Lake, is this condition called circarial dermatitis. And circarial dermatitis is a rash that once the parasite penetrates into the human skin, it causes a reactive rash. And so we have this problem here in the Front Range and also up in Crested Butte. I actually contracted it while working in some ponds up Ouch, there. So really painful rash or what happened? It's, it's really itchy, that's for sure. <laughs> you definitely want some cream to put on there. And last for days or kind of like poison oak? Three or four days. Uh-huh. Wow. So in your, one of your main test plots is Wiggins, which is about right. an hour east of here, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why there? Well, there's a couple of reasons. There's a pond complex out there that lends itself to research really well, but Wiggins, as some folks might know, has a nitrogen issue. It's The nitrogen pollution is so bad out there that the people of Wiggins can actually no longer drink the water under their feet. They're going to have to start piping in their water from other places because there's so much nitrogen from the ag in the area. Is this but, well water or the municipal water was actually shut off? The, munis- the municipal water is shut off. It is... Uh, illegal to use the Wiggins water. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be an issue. Well, so um, in about a minute we have left. So does this all come back to those darn farmers? Well, you know, I, like I said, I came from a farm and it's not, you know, it's it's sort of an institutional issue. I mean, the farmers are folks that are really trying to make a living uh, and it's, re- it's a really hard way to make a living and they are in a constant day-to-day gamble. So in order to hedge their bets, they usually apply more nitrogen than is needed just to make sure there are plenty of nutrients for the plants to grow. And, you know, fertilizers is relatively cheap, so they can afford to do that, and it ends up um, coming out ahead. So I think we need to not really demonize any player, you know, say the farmers in this, but we really need to search for integrative management practices in agriculture that can reduce the amount of runoff that we get and increase the amount of fertilizer that the plants actually use. Thank you. And I know a lot of that is actually being applied. And um, so that was John Mishler, a doctoral student in ecology and evolutionary biology at CU Boulder. You can hear more about nitrogen and human disease from John tonight as he'll deliver a talk at Cafe Scientifique in Boulder. His talk is called Worm Farms, How Fertilizer Runoff Can Alter Ecosystems and Increase the Risk of Being Infected with Parasites. Refreshments start at 5.30, and the talk starts at 6 o'clock. It'll be held at the Coach's Corner at the Millennium Hotel at 1345 28th Street in Boulder. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Tom McKinnon. This week's show producer and engineer was Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Tom Yulesman and Brianna Draxler. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Coco Rossi and from the Black Cat Orchestra. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of the show are available there or through iTunes. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303 447 9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.